0: Well, good morning. Good morning. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at First uh, Peter chapter three verses eighteen through twenty-two. Doctor uh, Sussex at the Master Seminary says this is the passage nobody wants to preach on, and and neither do I. <laughs> but but nevertheless, it is it is the most controversial, difficult passage in the book of of First Peter. So bear with me. Uh, there are at least five different views on verse nineteen. Wow. And modifiers of each one of those five, and then there's a sixth one that makes no sense at all. So, uh, at any rate, at any rate, uh, and and that's just one of the controversies. So, so it which takes us to another controversy in another book. So, uh, uh, at any rate, uh, <clears throat> we'll try to get through this. We'll try to make sense of it. Don't shoot me. Uh, but at any rate, at any rate, that's where we're going to be going this morning. So, before we do are there any prayer requests this morning (laughs) yeah because I was hired on a special permit this year I have to reapply for my job so I'm just going through all the like of like applying for my job and maybe possibly not getting rehired and having to find a job somewhere else so I appreciate prayer for that I have applications and stuff I have to finish and I have a job there on the 4th so Okay it's I'm having problems with my left hip And my foot feels like it's broken again But I don't see how it could be Because I haven't fallen or anything It's cold <laughs> You're going to feel it for the rest of your life <laughs> I can understand if my toes were hurting Because of the cold But my foot is covered up And my leg is covered up All the time Yeah Old injuries in the cold hurt. <laughs> That's all I can say. Uh, i think you to pray for the Jews over there in Jerusalem. They've, they've had a murder at the synagogue this week. Yeah. The Palestinians. And, and a, yesterday, a 13-year-old boy shot a father and son. Didn't kill them, but uh, it's just really a turmoil over there. And my nephew... Is taking his church on Tuesday over there for a, for a tour, so just interesting. Which will fit right into the right. despicable situation <laughs> this text is going to discuss. <laughs> At any rate, um, as we come into the text this morning, I th- just from the title, you're going to see where I'm going with this. I see this as a as basically a victory summary of of, uh, Jesus' work, um, His suffering, His dying, His uh, sacrifice on our behalf, and it's a pronouncement of victory overall, that's that's pretty much where I go with this text, Um, but uh, as we get into it, um, verse 18 uh, begins by saying, "...for Christ also suffered for sin once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that He might bring you to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit." Incidentally, this begins the whole controversy. The last part of that verse, but at any rate, at any rate, as we come into this, he says, "For also," which ties us back to verse seventeen. It ties us back into the suffering that Peter has always already spoken of uh, that believers may endure. If you remember last week, we talked about the way the the structure of suffering is is uh, uh, set up in in those verses. Is it's not likely, but it's possible that 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 was the idea there. Uh, that it's not the commonplace thing all the time, but it is not to be unexpected, I guess, would be the way we could we could say that. So he, he then he then proceeds to go on to bring, in a, in a sense here he's, t- he's taking, he's coming to Jesus suffering and saying, Jesus suffered. Now, there are other texts. There, there are two Greek variants on this word here. Uh, the One of which is that it, it says which the King, the King James the New King James, the E, the uh, uh, ESV, the LSB, uh, they they use that word suffering. In the NASB and the Revised Standard, it's the word died. It really doesn't make any difference except for I think the, the translators took the one variant because they felt, they felt that uh, that tied the verses together more coherently if you go on down the verse he goes on to say he died uh, he, that he was put to death in the flesh that, that, that is part of the text as well the fact of the matter is Jesus did both he suffered and he died so that kind of summarizes the crucifixion it was a massive suffering that led to death that's that's what it was, and that's in effect what Peter is saying here. He's saying, "For Christ also suffered, and that the reason for his suffering was sin." This is this is what he's, this is what he, oh, excuse me, this is what he is saying here, uh, that he suffered and died, having put, having been put to death in the flesh, and the whole purpose behind that was victory over sin. That's, that's the ultimate purpose behind that. that is, that's why he came. He came to deliver us from sin. And, and, he, and, he, and, he, and, he, and he points that Jesus is the ultimate example in that, that he, uh, that he suffered unto death in order to, in order to redeem us, is the, is the idea that is going on. He says, you suffered once, and he says, he, he goes on, he says, uh, he says, it was for sin, sin required death, Romans six twenty three. 23, uh, the wages of sin are death, uh, sin is a cause for Christ's suffering and death, you, you realize that, uh, the reason he went to the cross was me and you, because we're sinners, the only way we could be redeemed is he had to pay the price we couldn't pay. You had no ability to pay that price. Only Christ could pay that price. And, and that's what he's saying here. He's saying it had to be paid. Uh, 1 Peter 2.22, he, he, uh, Peter wrote, who, of Jesus, he said, who did not sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And then in verse 24, he, he goes on to say, Who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sin, we might live to righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. That's, that's the whole point of the crucifixion. That's what Jesus did. He, he bore my sin, and yours too. If you're a believer, that's, that's the point here. He took our sin upon himself. He paid the price. He took the full weight of God's wrath on my behalf that's what, that's what Peter is letting us know here he suffered and died for us he said he died for sin Christ was our substitute in, in that he took my place he took my place and paid a price I couldn't pay the result for me would have been eternity in hell and he redeemed us from that that's that's the picture that is being that is being painted here and and it's a victory he he was victorious over sin that's the idea that's being expressed here he died for sin hebrews 9, 28. so christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many that's 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 what that's what this text is is opening up to say in that he suffered and then he goes on to say once and for all uh, this is an interesting word. The way it's phrased, it it, it means to have a permanent perf- uh, 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 to have a permanent effect. And in other words, it, it isn't diminished in any way. It's permanent. It doesn't go away. It doesn't have to be repeated. It's perpetual. It uh, 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 It ha- it has a continual validity in the Old Testament system. They offered sacrifices at various sacrifices. There was a Day of Atonement, there was a Passover, there were the daily sacrifices. There was on and on an endless need uh, to make a, an atonement, a covering, a kaporah for sin. Jesus did that way with that. His once and for all sacrifice ended the sacrifice system. It's no longer necessary. The sacrifice has been made. It's complete. It's accepted. It was once and for all. It's a per, it has a permanent effect. I uh, did a little bit, in, in my reading, I ran across that uh, some commentators estimate, and this is an estimate, that on the day of, of, the, of, of Passover, that the sacrifices of lambs on that day uh, reached somewhere in the neighborhood of a quarter million lambs. Stop and think about that for a minute. They killed a quarter million lambs to cover their sin for one year. And then they did it again the next year. Jesus did it all in His sacrifice. He ended all of that. <clears throat> the, the word once and for all means once, one time only. That's 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 what it means. Uh, Jesus sacrificed... Uh, uh, uh jesus sacrifice satisfies god's righteousness for all time never requiring to be repeated that's 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 the that's the idea that's being expressed here in verse in in verse 8 and then he goes on from there and he says he says once and for all the righteous for the unrighteous uh, some texts say the just for the unjust it means the same thing uh, but but the the reality is the way the, the structure, the literary structure of this is it, it could re- it should read this way, the righteous one, singular for unrighteous people, plural the many is, is the idea here. That's what he's saying here. The one man Jesus, the righteous one. He is the one who paid the price. That's what, that's what Peter is telling us. Christ was our substitute who bore our penalty for sin. 2 Corinthians uh, five five uh, 5.21 he, uh, he who made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And he says that, he goes on and he says, he says that, that He might bring you to God. That's, that's the next part of it. He died, part of His sacrifice opened the door for you to come to God. That's what, that's what Jesus said. He opened access. He made available uh, on the, at the time of the crucifixion. The temple veil was rent in two, expressing that idea that now the way to God was open, and it's through Him. That's what that's what Peter is is talking about. This is how victorious his sacrifice was. He opened the door that man might have access to God in Christ. Understand it's only in Christ. He made him available. Hebrews 4 uh, Hebrews 4:16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we might receive mercy and find, find grace in a, in, in a time of need. That's that speaking of coming direct. We have direct access to come to God. It goes on in Hebrews 10, oops, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Basically, what he's saying here is the sacrifice of of Jesus brought us access to the living God. We can come now and access Him fully. And, and the purpose there was that He might bring us to that point. That's, that's what, he, that's what he's, he's wanting us to know here. Uh, Jesus' victory over sin gave us direct access to God. And then He says, then, and here's where it begins. It says, He says this, He says, Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit... Well, we really don't have a big problem with the fact that Jesus died, uh, that he was put to death in the flesh. Uh, John chapter 19, verses 31 through 37 describes the events around the cross at the time Christ died, when his physical body ceased To live, Uh, when that happened, uh, we have the testimony of the Roman soldier. A Roman centurion would have had some idea of what a dead person looked like. He'd probably seen hundreds of them, and uh, they they uh, uh, the stabbing him in the side with a spear. Uh, was an indicator of that when the blood and water flowed together that was an indicator that he had passed that he had died those those things they knew they didn't have to break his bones because he had already died in fulfillment of scripture that no bone would be broken so all of those things we know his physical life ceased and and that's what peter is saying here uh, he died in the flesh his physical existence his physical life stopped at that point he died but he goes on to say but he was made alive in the spirit that's the uh, that's the, the uh, rendering here in the LSV and the EVS and the NASB however the King James, the NIV and the New King James, they do it a little differently they they, uh, they add a word that's not there Uh, They put the definite article in and they say he was made alive in the spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit. Uh, The way the EVS has it, uh, and the NASB, uh, means that his spirit was alive. In other words, existence didn't cease when he died on the cross. Uh, Just as when you die, your spirit, if you're a believer, goes to be with the Lord. Uh, you don't cease to exist just your physical body does well that's that's what the NASB and the EVS sees this verse as saying uh, there is no definite article in the in the in the text uh, if peter had really wanted it to say the holy spirit he would have put one in there and he didn't um, but many commentators feel that it that is speaking that the spirit made him alive well are not to be totally contrary to that idea both God the Father uh, God the Son and God the Spirit were all involved in the resurrection were all involved in his, uh, 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 in his sacrifice they were totally involved in that but this specifically is talking about the fact that when his physical body died his spirit didn't he didn't cease to exist that's, that's, uh, that's the idea here it, ref- it refers to his internal, uh, his, internal <clears throat> his internal person. The spirit is always alive. Uh, the resurrection, on the other hand, was physical. So this isn't speaking of the resurrection. Some try to make this the resurre- resurrection. He, he was resurrected in a physical body, a very different one but he was still a physical body and and here it is just talking about spirit some 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 commentators make this to say he was in the realm of the spirit but the fact of the matter is it's talking about his spirit was still alive within him uh, he didn't he didn't cease to he didn't cease to exist incidentally just just to kind of support that a little bit, 1 John 5.21 tells us that Jesus Christ is himself eternal life. So his eternal life did not have a brief non-existence. That's, that's what we're saying here. At the cross he was indeed separated from the Father as He weighed the, as he took on the full weight of God's wrath for sin, as that was poured out on him, but he was fully alive while that was taking place, Matthew 27, 46. In His death for sin and resurrection, Christ was victorious over sin, and He conquered its penalty, which is death, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 57. So as we come to this first first part of the verse, Peter is telling us that Jesus, through His crucifixion, through His suffering, through His death... He triumphed. He was victorious. He accomplished the mission, if you will. And then we move on to the part that now gets sticky. (laughs) Christ is victorious in his proclamation. Verses verses 19 uh, through the first part of 20. In which also he went and made proclamations to spirits now in prison uh, prison who were once disobedient. Now, this is the place where all the various views come in. The question here is, and here's the controversy, who are the spirits in prison? Are the unbelievers who died? Are the Old Testament believers who died? Or are they fallen angels? What did Christ preach? Second chance? uh, Completion of the redemptive work? Or a final condemnation? And when did he preach? In the days of Noah, between his death and resurrection, or after his resurrection? Those are, those are the questions, those are the controversy that this text brings up. I think the text answers them, uh, and we will try to see if, if you can follow along with this. Now, here are the theories, just so you know the theories. The first theory is that Christ in his spirit was in Noah preaching to people alive at the time before the flood. That's, that's one of them. The second one is Christ to people in hell. That is the second chance. I hope none of you believe that one. But at any rate, at any rate, uh, that's that's not tr- that's not valid. The third one is Christ preached to people in hell a final condemnation. In other words, in other words, those people who perished in the flood. And in fourth, the fourth, the fourth view is that Christ. Christ died, proclaimed release to people who repented before they died in the flood, and he now leads them out of purgatory. This is the Catholic view of this verse. They're in purgatory where he's preaching to them. Well, that's the view. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm just okay. okay. Please. All of them. Yes, please. Okay. One is it's, it's, it's Jesus' spirit was preaching through Noah the people who were alive before the flood. The second one is another one that we would not buy on any means, but he preached to people in hell and there's a second chance for redemption, which is absolutely untrue. The third one is he preached to people in hell their final condemnation. He let them know, this is where you're going to stay. That's a little flippant, but I apologize for that but anyway at any rate uh, and then the uh, the fourth one is a Roman Catholic view that it's people who repented as the flood drowned them literally and uh, um, and are now in purgatory and he's leading them out of purgatory okay. and then the fifth one is Christ. During the interim between between his uh, his death and his resurrection, preached triumph over fallen angels. We'll deal with those. We'll deal with a couple of those a little more in detail. Uh, number five, incidentally, is the most popular view amongst theologians, so, conservative theologians today. So, Christ, in the interim between his death and resurrection, was preaching to the angels? Fallen angels. fallen angels. Yes, we have to go to the infamous Genesis 6, but oh. at any rate. <laughs> and then and then uh, the sixth one is just a crazy one. Uh, this is a guy who just really didn't think that Peter knew what he was writing about, and Peter meant to say Enoch instead of Noah. You can just put that one in the basket over here. <laughs> put that one in the basket. Anyway, those are the those are the views. So now we'll try to make some sense of it. Verse 19 in Greek is nine words. Most controversial verse in the whole book, it's nine words. And he says, in which also, which refers back to 18, it, it, uh, um, in the spirit at the time he also while his physical body was lying in the tomb that's what that verse says that's what it says those words say it, it it says he went which basically simply means that he went from one place to another place that's that's what it means the same word is used in verse 22 where it says having gone to heaven it means he went to heaven that's that's what this word means so this this opening verse says that while He was in the Spirit, while His physical body lay in the tomb, He went to another place. that's, That's what the opening part of verse 19 says. He went there, and He went there to do a specific task. And the task says He made proclamation. It does not say He went to give the evangelical, it doesn't say he went to give the good news. It said he made proclamation, he heralded, he proclaimed. Now, I, I kind of think, given who Peter is and the guy who preached the first evangelical message of the church, that if he wanted to mean that, that Jesus was evangelizing people during this time, he would have used that word. But he didn't. He used the word to proclaim. This is a word that speaks of a herald who goes before an event to herald the coming of some event. That's how this word is used. In ancient Greek, in the Greek and classic Greek, excuse me, in classic Greek, it's the herald that went before the conquering general as he returned home, announcing the triumph of his victory, which is what I think this verse does. That, that's that's what it is saying is happening here. He's making a proclamation of 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 <clears throat> of uh, uh, of of victory in the battle. Is 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 the idea that's being expressed here, which is why I say it's Christ's victory victory proclamation. He's not evangelizing, and he's certainly not teaching the idea of a second chance. There is no second chance. Uh, once, uh, once, uh, once you die physically in this life, there is no second chance. Uh, all, all, all bets are off. Your, your eternity is is set, and and and, a, and there is no purgatory where there's a holding pen where we wait to see if maybe enough people will pray for you and get you out or something. There's none of that kind of stuff. You either are a believer, and when you die you go to be with Jesus, or you're not, and you go to eternal punishment. Those are those are the two options. So this is a, this is not a second chance offering. Uh, now it could well be that, and, and, and given the way the structure of this word is, I, I think it eliminates, number one, that it's Jesus preaching in the spirit of Noah, uh, although Noah was a preacher. He did preach for 120 years. I don't know that he evangelized during 120 years. I think he preached coming judgment, as did Jonah to Nineveh. The difference is, at Nineveh, the people repented. And what we have in Genesis 6, at the time of Noah, which that's the date he's going to give to this, during the time of Noah. During the time of Noah, no one repented. Only eight people got into the ark. It was Noah's family. They're the only ones. Incidentally, I I did a little bit of research. Just, Just this thought popped into my head. What was the earth's population at the time of the flood? How many people lived on the face of planet Earth at the time of the flood? Well, nobody really knows, and some people think it's not a lot. Um, However, one estimate was 750 million. Oh my goodness. That was one estimate. Two other estimates were a little bit higher. One was 7 billion. I, I think that one probably might be a bit exaggerated. But the other one was kind of reasonable. Uh, th- these guys said, well, given the life expectancy of human beings in that day, somewhere between 700 and 900 years, uh, if you just had a population growth, you know, where you, death versus birth and the expansion of it, of .001, there would be 4 billion people. So even if there's just 750 million just (laughs) only 8 people survived the flood only 8 I don't know about you but when I look at if I I took that number into thought and I I, it kind of disrupted my study for a little while because do you realize how grotesque sin is to God that he destroy a, a billion people because of it And that, and I, uh, years several years ago, I I I preached through the book of Revelation, and and I tried to do an analysis, and I think my math math got fuzzy, and I don't remember what the number was, but go through the book of Revelation and see like a third of the world's population is killed, and then a quarter is killed, and then there's seven thousand killed here, and there's another bunch killed here. I, I added that up, and it was billions of people, if we have today's population. That's the awesome fearfulness of our God. He is an awesome, powerful God. And sin is not to be trifled with. I I think that's a, 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 a big part of this message right here. He made proclamation that he was victorious in the battle. He made an announcement of victory over sin and death. Look at Romans chapter. We're going to look at several verses in Romans 5 and 6. Romans, <clears throat> Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. So then as though one transgression so then as through one transgression there resulted a com, condemnation of all men, even so one act of righteousness there resulted justification to uh, uh of life to men. And then in chapter 6, verse 5 and 6, uh, Paul writes, For if we have become united with him in his likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be like his likeness, and his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. And then in 9 and 10, he says, he says, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over us. And verse 10, for the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives he lives to God. And then in John, 1 John chapter 3 chapter 3 verse 8 The one who does sin is of the devil because the devil sins from the beginning. The Son of God was manifest for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. And I think that's what we see here. Uh, that's what we see in this proclamation. And he says, to the spirits who are now in prison, and there becomes another, another part of the controversy, who are the spirits in prison? Well, obviously, I think they're fallen angels. Uh, but at any rate, uh, when, this, uh, <clears throat> when the word, and, the, and here's, there's some reasons for that. One, uh, one of the first reasons for that is he uses the term spirit. He doesn't use the word soul. Um, More than likely, I mean, it's it's a very reasonable assumption that when he uses the word spirit, he's not referring to... The spirit of men, the spirit of when it's human beings, it's always qualified, and there's no qualifier here. For example, Hebrews twelve thirty three it says the spirit of the righteous. There it's talking about men, uh, because the spirit is qualified, but here spirit is unqualified, <clears throat> and so it's probably uh, it, it it most likely then uh, is talking about angels. That's that's that would be the text that he's talking about here. Uh, the circumstance. And the time frame here is the time of Noah. That's that's what he's telling us. So it's Genesis chapter six is the picture uh, that is taking place here. I don't want to go into the complete ex- <laughs> all all that has to be said about Genesis chapter six because we don't have three hours. Uh, but uh, but uh, uh, just sufficient to say this: I when uh, when when I started seminary, the master seminary hadn't started yet. It was. Talbot Seminary at the, Grace, at the Extension at Grace Community Church in Sun Valley uh, which then became the Master Seminary a couple years later uh, at that time I took the exposition of Genesis from Dr. Mueller who went on to be a professor at the Master Seminary and Dr. Mueller said if you wanted to start a fight in the theology department at Talbot Seminary you walked in the room and you said Genesis chapter 6 and it started the fight <laughs> So, so, just know that, okay. Uh, but uh, but here he's talking. He's talking about Genesis chapter six, and basically in Genesis chapter six, what we have is a condition, which I think the world is probably going to see again uh, in the time of Revelation. But in the time of the Revelation, but. Uh, it, it says in Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 7, Now it happened when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw the daughters of men were good in appearance, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then, then Yahweh said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is indeed flesh. Nevertheless, his days will be 120 years The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and afterwards also, when the sons of God came to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were mighty men who were men of old, men of renown. Then Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth and that every intent and thought of his heart was only evil continually and Yahweh regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart and Yahweh said I will blot, blot out man whom I have created from the face of the uh from the land from from an, uh, from man to animal to creeping things to birds in the sky for I regret that I have made him and then verse 8 is is in the midst of all of this there is still grace because it says Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord the text describes it's short it's only seven verses it describes a time in which evil is rampant and basically evil is the, is the, is the, the call of the day the intent of every man's heart was, tur- was turned to evil that's what the text says but it has this inclusion in there where it speaks about the sons of God and the daughters of men. Now, there are those who take that to mean the sons of Seth and the daughters, apparently, of Cain, because married, and, and, uh, um, and somehow that created all this evil. However, the term sons of God, in its ancient use before the flood, is only applied to angels, and the only other place it's really used is in Job, and it talks about when the sons of God sang together, and it's talking about angels. So if we follow the line, it would it wouldn't change, and and, and incidentally, Seth and his children are never called sons of God; they're never called Ben Elohim. That 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 doesn't happen. So. So the most logical conclusion of what Genesis six is talking about is it's it's talking about a breakdown between the terrestrial and the celestial. It's talking, and I know there's holes in this. Okay, I already know that. The big hole is it says angels don't marry, uh, but this is saying this is saying something different uh, than that. It's saying it's saying that there was some kind of cohabitation between fallen demonic angels, and, and human women. It doesn't say specifically that the Nephilim were the offspring, but it's logical that that is the conclusion. Nephilim means to fall. Uh, some have said it means ones who prey upon. It talks about vicious predators. Others just say it talks about their natural state of fall. One, that's Bruce Wilkie in his commentary on Genesis, that they're, they are fallen uh, it, it, it it describes their specific horrific um, existence second Peter second Peter Peter is going to come back to this subject a little bit second Peter chapter 2 verses 4 through 6 where he says for if God did not spare angels who sinned but cast them into the pit that's the abyss "...and delivered them to chains of darkness, and kept them for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteous, and seven others, when he brought a flood upon the ungodly world." In other words, angels were certainly involved at whatever level they were involved in the, in the sin of that day. And these are demons, fallen demons, who are currently, according to Peter, in chains." In 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 the abyss. And then in Jude, Jude shares sheds a little more light on this event. In Jude six and seven where it says, And angels who did not keep their their own dominion but ban but abandoned their proper abode he has kept in eternal bounds under darkness for the day for judgment of the great day and then he goes on and he, he makes and here here uh, he makes a, a comparison he says just as Sodom and, and the, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them having indulged in the same way as those in gross sexual immorality and having gone after strange flesh are exhibited as an example and undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Basically, he is tying the time of Noah to the time of of Lot, Sodom and Gomorrah. And he is basically saying there that the gross immorality of sexual sin within Sodom and Gomorrah is compared to what happened in Genesis 6. In Genesis, if I'm correct, if my view is correct, and I know there's holes in it, if Genesis 6 then is the breakdown of the of the celestial with the terrestrial. In other words, angel initiated. Lot is the breakdown of humanity who went after angels. Only in this case they were good angels, they slammed the door and then killed them all. In other words, that's the problem. The problem here is a breakdown in God ordered existence i guess would be the word i'm looking for in other words he, he the breakdown of order the breakdown of the way god created things is what happened here in genesis 6 there's a breakdown there's a, a massive breakdown and the interaction included angels Fallen angels, demons. In Lot's Day there's a breakdown with mankind and it's man who is the aggressor here and they go and, and they try to try to have sex, homosexual sex with humans. Uh, with excuse me, with good angels, which they're having no part of it. I ask you to ponder that thought given what is going on in our society today and wonder where we're going. But but at any rate at any rate, that's the picture here. That's the picture that that he's he's bringing this triumph into, and what I'm when I and he says they were once disobedient, in other words they disobeyed uh, they and 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 the Jude text says they left their proper place, they went from one place to another they left their proper place they left their proper estate. Uh, that, that's the idea that's being expressed here so I, I see this second I see what we're seeing what I hold here is, ver- is, is, is view 5 that Christ between his, between his crucifixion and his resurrection made a triumphant proclamation to those angels from Genesis 6 who, who, who left their proper abode who are in eternal bounds and basically declared victory over the whole realm of satanic control that's that's the idea here. It's a proclamation of Christ's utter victory over Satan. Now, did I get you all upset? Good enough. So, John, I'm also thinking of, of Genesis, that that when Eve sinned, she in that part right there where it says that the um, the snake and the heel will be bruised. I mean, that seems to me like this, this would be a proclamation of that being fulfilled. Uh, in effect, yeah. In fact, if we had time, we we'd have, we don't have time to develop Genesis 1 through 6, right. uh, or Genesis 3 through 6, but you're absolutely correct. You're absolutely correct. It's a proclamation that that victory has been completed, that that prophecy is fulfilled, that it's completed. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that point up. I wasn't going there, but... <laughs> I'm glad you brought it up. Anyway, uh, tell me again, John. What is the proclamation that Jesus is making? He's he's heralding victory. He wins. He, he wins. In other words, in other words, as she just said, the heel crushed the snake. From Genesis, Genesis chapter three. In other words, salvation has been completed. It's the 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 uh, from from that point on. He's heralding that Satan is a total defeated foe, and everything about it is defeated. It's it's total okay. victory. He's okay. declaring victory. Okay. That's 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 the that's the way I see this text. And that's point five, incidentally, in that list I gave you. But at any rate, okay. Um, Let's get back to Peter now. Peter, Peter, then he goes on and he says, and he's going to give us some more ideas here. He says, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, which basically that is telling us that Genesis, that what he's talking about is, is in the days of Noah, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 7 of Genesis, that's the time he's talking about. The, the, the patience of God was kept waiting during that time. God gave them 180, 180 120 years uh, to uh, uh, to uh, that's how long God's patience was in that particular in that particular um, uh, event. It was during the time Noah was preaching righteousness. Second, Peter two, five he and his wife his three sons and their three wives are the only members of the human race who then make it into the ark no one else goes Uh, that's that's uh that's uh that's part of the idea here basically the whole of humanity the whole antediluvian world refused to repent and they drowned with the exception of noah and his family that's that's uh, that's what uh, that's what that's what he's saying here uh, it was it was who once were disobedience when the patience of god kept waiting in the days of noah during the construction of the ark in which a few that is eight persons were brought safely through the water the rest round And, and that's, that's the picture we have here. I, I wonder, one, one commentator mused that, you know, to build that ark took a lot of work. And you got Noah and three sons. You know, did they contract some of the people that lived around the land to help build that ark, and they didn't get in it either? You know, you kind of muse about that. I wonder if that happened. Can't prove that, but it's an interesting thought. I mean, I wonder how he lifted those beams. You know, you realize he was only—he was a young man at the time he was doing that. He was only 600 years old. <laughs> you know, 600 back then probably meant something different than 600 today would, though, right? Well, he lived another 350 years. <laughs> he made it to 950. Middle age. Yeah, he's my middle age. I'm not sure when I was middle age, I could—I li- could lift those beams. Well, maybe I did, but anyway. <laughs> I did it on my patio. I guess so. Okay. Oh. But but at any rate, but anyway, you wonder, you wonder at the conclusion, only eight people were saved from judgment. The whole rest of the antediluvian world rejected God and drowned. That's, that's, that's the picture we have here. And it says that he brought them safely through the water. This, this is uh, uh for approximately a year it was really a little over a year uh, they, were, they were in the ark and they were on the water and Genesis 6 9 through eight twenty two uh, gives us that time period and, and the events that go on during that and he says he says only 8 people the rest drowned after more than a year they finally came out of the they finally were able to come out of the boat uh, out of the ark onto dry land and they know that God had saved them from being drowned in the sea of human corruption. Ultimately, that's, 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 that's the picture here. He says, he, says, he, says, he says, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the yard, in which only a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And now we start the next controversy. Uh, that's in this text, because he says, he goes on to say in verse 21, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal of a good conscience to God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm going to state affirmatively at the beginning, this is not teaching regenerative baptism. Baptism in and of itself will not, cannot, it never has, never will, save you. Period. No external right saves. Faith in Jesus Christ alone s- saves. Ephesians 2, 8, nine. For by grace you have been saved, through faith. That not of yourself, it is the gift of God. You don't even have the ability to believe. God gave you the ability to do that. Not of works, lest any man should boast. So baptism, this is not teaching regenerative baptism. There are those who use this verse to try to teach that. But it's, it's simply not the case. What it says here is, it says, corresponding to that, corresponding to that they were brought safely through the water. Uh, in a sense, the ark was immersed in the flood. It didn't go under, but it was it was it was in the flood. It says it says corresponding to that. This is an interesting word: is anti-upon, which means a copy, a counterpart. Um, it's uh, it's 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 a figure pointing to something. Um, it's the word that we get antitype from. Yeah, antitype. In theology, it means an earthly expression of a heavenly reality. Uh, that's how it's used in, in theological terms. So he's, he is saying, he is saying, he is saying, basically that that corresponds to baptism. That's that's what he's saying. He's saying it's a symbol or analogy of a spiritual truth. Fa- Noah and his family were preserved in the ark in an, in an analogy to salvation we have in Christ. That's, that's what he's saying here. Baptism, which simply just the word baptism just means to be immersed. And it doesn't necessarily mean water, incidentally. Uh, normally that's the way we use it. We you know, you 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 profess Jesus Christ, and you are baptized. We get you all wet. We dunk you in the water. Now, see, I I started out as a Methodist, so I got both sides covered. I got sprinkled once, and then I got baptized, immersed later. Uh, but uh, uh, but there was an uh, interesting when when any of you were in Jerusalem, did any of you go to the the, the church on Mount Nebo? Uh, what's left of it? Uh, on Saint Catherine's Church, any of you ever been there? Been there? Well, there there's a there's a place, and and uh, there's all that's left of it is the foundation and the baptistry. It's the whole rest of the church is gone, and the baptistry basically looks like a 55 gallon drum made out of rock. So I, I think they just put them in there, and, you know, and out they came. It was it, we didn't go through all this this kind of stuff. <laughs> they just put them in and got them wet. Uh, but, uh, uh, but you know, that's kind of off this point. But any, anyway, anyway, this is not, that didn't save them either. And, and he makes that clear because he says it's not the removal of dirt. It's not about water. That's not what he's saying here from the flesh. It's not, it's not cleansing of the flesh. That's not, that's not what he's talking about here. He says, no, rather than that, it's an appeal. It's an appeal to God for a good conscience. He's saying, he's saying basically, it's talking about your salvation. That Christ is assuring you of your salvation. Uh, this, is the, this is the point here. Because he goes on to say, how did, was this accomplished? And he makes it very clear. This was not accomplished because somebody dunked you in water. It's because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's, that's what he tells us here. Salvation does not occur by any right. God saves the sinner by faith, Ephesians two eight and 9. That sinner is immersed or baptized into Christ's death and resurrection, where he becomes in spiritual union with Christ. Peter concludes with this final statement of victory, where he says... Who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authority and powers have been put into subjection to him. In other words, he is king of kings and lord of lords, is what it's saying here. He says, Philippians chapter 2. After this great the great Christological passage on Christ, um on Christ's suffering and humiliation, he comes he comes to this in verses nine through eleven. Therefore God also highly exalted him and extowed upon him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, of those who are in heaven, those who are in the earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And then in Hebrews chapter one, verses Three through six. God, uh, well, verse three. Who is the radiance speaking of Jesus here he's talking about the sun in these last days he spoke through the sun and he and and goes on to say that he's the one who made the worlds and he says who is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power who having accomplished and cleansi- uh accomplished cleansing of sin set down at the right hand of majesty on high having become so much better than angels he has inherited a more excellent name than they for which of the angels did he being God, ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and again I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to, to, uh, a son, a son to me, and when he brings forth his first born in the world, he says, let the angels of God worship him, that's, that's the picture here, uh, the authority and power of Jesus Christ it says, having gone into heaven once again, this is that word, he went to another place. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, the ascension of Jesus Christ. And it, and it, it, it speaks of his position as being, as being supreme. He has all authority and power. Angels, authorities and powers are all in subjection to him. Ephesians chapter 1 verses nineteen to excuse me nineteen to twenty one and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who have have believed according to the work of his might of his strength uh which which he worked in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at the right hand in heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power that the at the <clears throat> that every name that the name of jesus that uh, um, at, at Excuse me. That every name that is named, not only in this age, but the age to come, and put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him, and gave him head over all things the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all, all, and all. That's that's the picture of Jesus Christ here. That's that's uh, where he is seated today. Uh, he seats at the right hand of God, waiting that moment. Jesus says, "Come and take everyone home." The word here. Um, where it says "made subject" is the same word that's used in the rest of the text to be in subjection to. It means to fall in line in order. In other words, everyone is ordered under Jesus. He's the commander. That's the picture. That's the picture. They're all lined up in. Re, uh, in <coughs> they're all lined up under him. The point here of this text, I believe, is that Jesus is the victor that's what it's saying here he's had victory over sin he has proclaimed that victory uh, to, the, to the fallen world of Satan and his demons and he secures our salvation through that victory that's, that's what he's saying he provides an example of what it is like to endure unjust suffering he saves us and he secures us those are the ideas I think that Peter is expressing as we come as we come through this text. Hopefully, I didn't confuse you too much. <laughs> I, I I will admit I approached this text with fear and trepidation, <laughs> and I know why. I, uh, why uh, Why uh, the professor at Master said uh, no one wants to preach this text. <laughs> Anyway, are there any comments or questions this morning? Yeah. When you were talking about how uh, the sin, at the time of Noah and God and this kind of rebellion against God's creator Isn't that kind of what all sin is all the time? Us rebelling against. Well, that's what God's sin freedom. is. Yeah, sin. Sin basically is rebel Is well, for the for the unredeemed, it's their natural state. They are sinners. And it's just what they do naturally. And it's a rebellion against God's order in, in whatever they do, in whatever way, shape, or form. I mean, even, even, this, even people who we would say are good people, you know, who, uh, who try to do good things, who are philanthropic and try to help other people and all that kind of stuff, they're basically saying, they're singing uh, Sinatra's song, I'll Do It My Way, I Don't need God. You know that's that's ultimately what they're doing. Um, I think the song we probably ought to sang after this one, but I'm not leading any songs. is Victory in Jesus. But at, at any rate, but at any rate, at, at, at any rate, um, that's them. Uh, you know, and then you have the the totally wicked, despicable people. But they're all in the same boat. You know, they're all in the same boat. Now the the key is when you sin and when I sin. That's when a believer. Doubles up his fist, sticks it in the face of God and says, I will not. Stupidly, you know, but you know what? Jesus won victory over that too, thankfully. And that's why we have 1 John 1, 9 that we, uh, we keep short accounts with God, keep short accounts with God. Because if you look at this, he is a fearsome, awesome God, but to us, he's a loving father. And I think we need to be thankful for that. So let's close. Father God, we thank you. We thank you this morning for this time. Uh, we just pray that uh, uh, that your spirit would use this text to encourage us, uh, to help us to understand more fully uh, the victory that it ours, no matter what we are currently facing in life, uh, whether we are going through some trials or whether we are facing or whether we come are currently or come to face some unjust suffering, we just ask, Father, that we would look to Jesus, as, as, as we are told in the book of Hebrews, that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, uh, that we would be fixed on Him, and we would understand fully that He is the victory. He won the victory. And in that victory, we have no fear. Because we have Jesus, and we thank you in his name. Amen.